Hey everyone, David here. I'm going to get you to this week's episode of Close Reads in just a second. But first, I have to tell you about something that I am so excited about. It is a new story from the creator of the Million Plus Selling Green Ember series. It's a brand new story with an old soul. It's the can't-miss first adventure in a thrilling new series. It's Jack, Zulu, and the Waylander's Key. An enchanting adventure in the tradition of Tolkien and Lewis as well as Spielberg and Lucas. But this fantastical journey launches in rural West Virginia in the 80s with a half Appalachian, half African kid trying to escape the town he sees defining his small, sad life. Jack discovers a gate hiding a city between 12 realms and finds out where he truly belongs in a surprising and satisfying adventure. It's written by S.D. Smith, also known as Sam around here. He wrote this with his son, Josiah, so it's a true family operation. It's a really wonderful uh, story that they're telling, just in telling stories together. My kids love it. We're reading it together. And uh, if your kids love the Green Ember series but are getting, you know, a bit older, this is going to be perfect for you. The pre-order is going on now. It launched on October 4th, and the book officially releases on November 15th. On November 20th, we're doing a launch party here in Concord, North Carolina, which you can learn more about at goldberrybooks.com. If you want to get this book, you can head to jackzulu.com. That's J-A-C-K-Z-U-L-U.com. Be sure to sign up for his newsletter to get access to all of the great things that S.D. Smith is doing. Again, it's jackzulu.com. I hope you'll check this book out because it is truly worth adding to your family's library. This episode is also brought to you by Layered Reading, a six-week intensive from the Searcy Institute taught by Andrea Lipinski. This course runs from October 20th to December 1st, which means that it has already started, but you can still sign up. You'll get access to the recording of the first classes or any classes that you miss. And in this reading intensive, Andrea Lipinski will provide teachers and readers with tools that equip readers to think about, play with, and wrestle with any text. It begins with the recognition that reading is an act of communication, of listening, in which the most most important thing is to receive the idea that has been communicated by the writer. So this intensive helps readers master the skills that enable them to perceive the logos, in short, to become a master reader. Its ultimate goal is not to help students perform better on homework and tests, though probably would help with that, but to help readers experience the deep pleasures, riches, and comforts to be found in literature and to grow in wisdom and virtue. If you're interested in this, head to searcyinstitute.org slash events to learn more. Again, that is searcyinstitute.org slash events. Okay, with that, let's get you to this week's episode of Close Reads. Hello, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Ian Andrews. And I half expected, like my brain was waiting for, and I'm Tim McIntosh, which reminds me <laughs> that we just want to say thank you, Ian, for filling in. So of course. valiantly, I know it's been a hardship. Um, and yeah, so we just want to say thank you. For us. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Guys, we love you. Guys you guys are so hard to be around. This yeah. has really been difficult for me. Mm-hmm. No, this is this has been so fun. I'm I'm enjoying the heck out of it. This is this is a podcast for the incurable reader. Uh because you're listening to close reads and that's our that's our little slogan thing. And uh and Ian is an incurable reader as well. So it's been great to have have Ian here. We are gonna discuss book four of a gentleman in Moscow. Then next week we're gonna discuss book five. And then we're going to do a Q&A, which means that including this week, we only have three episodes left on this book. Um, I'm sure Ian will be joining us for some, for some future in, uh, bookish endeavors as well. well future I episodes. certainly hope so. So we're going to be discussing that and what the schedule looks like for next year between the regular show and the bonus episodes and all kinds of other things we have in mind. But, uh, but before we dig into book four, Ian, well, while we have you here, how are you doing? Doing great. Doing great. I, uh, <clears throat> I have a recommendation to make to all of you listeners. 
Okay. Um, on on Monday, October the seventeenth, mandolinist Chris Teeley and virtuoso pianist and songwriter Jacob Collier showed up at the same club, the Blue Note in New York City, and went on stage and did like a six song set together. Super um, cool. And it's all up on YouTube. You should all go and watch it. It is utterly spectacular. Two of, How do I two find of probably it? just go to YouTube and search for one of those two. We'll search for those two names, Jacob okay. Collier and Chris Teeley. It's T H I L E. Um, in my opinion, two of, two of the most brilliant musical minds of the generation um, couldn't be from more different backgrounds in terms of style, but uh, it's like watching two people have a really, really, really articulate conversation in a language you do not speak. Oh, and it I love is that. Gorgeous. What a great comparison. Absolutely too. gorgeous. I'm sold. I'm going to so do I'm it. having a great day because of that. <laughs> <laughs> Heidi, what about you? Um, wait, what's the question? I got lost in his answer. <laughs> How are you doing? <laughs> like, oh, I'm doing so great. It's fall break for us. <laughs> we are off to a good start down visiting family in Phoenix. And then tomorrow, Scott and I are heading to Puerto Vallarta for his annual company executive retreat mm. so that will be not fun at all so pray for me <laughs> well you know who can't go to mexico oh i do me? know the count the count exactly <laughs> the count i got the right answer for that the count oh, nice. cannot go to mexico in fact you can't go anywhere so let's talk about that i, I was thinking about the character arc of Count Rostov. And I was thinking about the various relationships that he has, the things that he experiences, the uh, the pettinesses that he sometimes finds himself feeling, the petty feelings he sometimes encounters himself feeling, the, um, the wisdom he sometimes shares, all these different factors about him. And then I was reading Heidi's column for this month, which literally just went live before we started recording. And it's about East of Eden. And she talks about... Uh, I mean, I, I took a line from it for the title. And it's just like the glory and shame of being alive. And she talks about the idea of whole characters in that essay. She talks about Lee from East of Eden, for example, and Samuel Hamilton maybe being the only characters who seem whole. So as I was reading that, this morning and kind of editing that for it to go up, I was thinking about how that might apply to a gentleman in Moscow. And I started thinking about whether the arc of his character so far through book four, as we're, let's say, three quarters of the way through this book now, or maybe more, thus far, have we, are we encountering a count who is more whole, more healthy? than he was at the beginning. Where do you think he he stands as far as that goes? Um, I got a couple emails. I know this is this is a little long-winded, but I um I, I got an email from a couple of emails about our conversation as regards the count and Anna. And I would say that some people took issue with our sort of like glossing over that. Um and I'm just kind of summarizing here very loosely. Like I'm not making the arguments that people are making. But one person said that they actually think that his relationship with Anna is proof of a deficit in him. 
that it is a la- that it is sort of like meant to be seen as a lack of health in him. So th- so all these different questions, the, the the idea of whole characters, these emails that got sent in, um, a couple comments that got sent to me, things like that have me thinking about this his arc and his state of mind and his state of soul, if you will. So I'd like to kind of examine that as we get into these final chapters to see what his stay in this hotel and the things that he has had to experience and endure to the extent that they are endurances has done to him. Okay, that was long-winded. So now I'm just going to toss it out there. Um, I'll start with Ian because he's our he's our special guest, and then I'll let <laughs> Heidi correct his his uh, his his the failures of his argument. Ian, what good. do you think about this? And that's an that. open, it is an open-ended question, but I'm yeah, but I'm I think it's an inter- interesting way into thinking about the journey that this character has gone on. Because although he is going nowhere, he is going on a journey, and journeys in yeah. literature are character changers. So how has he evolved and how has he changed? Has he grown? Has he is he what? How is he different? Do you think? Okay, there you go. I yeah. went long-winded. Now no, that's a great friend. question. I love it. I, it's hard to figure out one tack to take on a question that broad, but I do think that he has changed and it hasn't been by dint of effort. Um, he seems to be more acted upon than acting, which is really interesting to me. Um, might have something to say about our author's perspective on such things. Um, but the influence of all of these relationships, Emil and, and Andre and, Sophia and Anna seems to have been to, to grow him up, to make him mature. Um, the vision that he has of himself, the memory that he goes back to a couple of times about showing up late to the theater and what a joy it is to, to be a man about town, to be free, to show up late to the theater. There's a, there's a careless disregard for the people around him in pursuit of his own pleasure and his own goals that typified his life before he was imprisoned. And that seems to have gone. And I think it's the pressure of responsibility and relationships that has done that to him. Um, and I think that's a good development, actually. He strikes me as someone who um, whose self-love has been replaced with love for others. Although it's interesting to think about that in the context of the, the big reveal of the section, which is that Anna and Sophia not only know about each other, but know each other, <laughs> which I think is just great. I loved all of that. And his response to it is a callback to to his own instinct, which is to control, which is to reach out, reach out to whatever it is that's that's in his life that he feels he can use to make himself secure, happy, um, well-adjusted to cope, basically, and keep all of those things very neatly defined in their own boxes and separate from one another so that he can, I don't know, use them might be too strong a word, but something along those lines. Um, they are facets of his story, and he is the one who is living it. And I think it's evidence that moment where he realizes Sophia and Anna know each other and, and the readers go, of course they do. Right. (laughs) But um, I think that moment is evidence that that's not really how life works. And that's being borne in upon him by things like raising a daughter and having a long-term relationship as unorthodox as it might be. Um, So yeah, I think developments are good. They trend upward for the count. And I think that comes from outside rather than inside of his character. He's being pressed and it's, it's turning out good things. Mm. Heidi, you're muted. So it's hard to hear you. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. It does indeed. Um, 
to sum up, I'm just kidding. Um, I think it is. <laughs> um, I I do think that he is becoming more and more of a whole character, and in in my mind, I I am continually looking at these literary questions through the lens of what I consider to be the fundamental fragment in the human soul, which is the division between duty and desire or what we want versus what we ought to do. And I, I think that Count is a very desire-driven person and has kind of grown up, had this luxury of being able to orient his life around all of the good things of life, right? Um, and he that's been dying hard in him over the years partly because he's driven by his appetites and partly because he's defending a way of life that matters and that's one of the things that we've been talking about over the past few weeks and one of the questions that's raised by the novel is is the good life worth fighting for right is it worth defending um and 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 so all of that's very complicated uh, for the count and for us as the reader. I think this section is so moving to me with the revelation about um, about Mishka and the and the poem that happens at the end, because I see Mishka on the other side as being a very duty-driven person who's continually fighting for his ideals and what he believes in. And those ideals have died hard for Mishka over the years. Like he believed in this new world that was going to be built and implemented by the Bolsheviks and then the Soviets. And then, and then that, that dream didn't come to fruition. And, and so there on this I wouldn't call it an opposite trajectory. They're on the same trajectory that we are all on, which is to become healed, to have those those two things unified in our soul. And for the count, it's it's a question of increasing dutiful action required of him. And for Mishka, it was kind of losing everything that he believed in and having to then fight for himself as a person, not just this ideology. Um, and I think they both succeed in that, but we haven't seen the end of the Count's story yet. How is he different than he was at the beginning? It's a good question. Go ahead, Ian. I think you should take this one first. My voice has been talking a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think... <laughs> I think <laughs> I like the like detachment that is implied in that. <laughs> My voice has been talking. About I don't know. Just keep saying stuff, right? I Listen. need to get some agency. <laughs> My, <laughs> My name is somebody, Tim Shell. <laughs> yeah, about to, right. Thank you. I received that. I think, I think, I'm torn about that. Um, and this is just maybe a restatement of what I said a second ago, but um, he's not much different than he was. And the things that are, are come as a result of, of unavoidable responsibilities, like being saddled with a young girl who has no one else in the world, but you. And all of a sudden, well, your options are to 
let her waste away and die or learn to care for her. Right. And that's on the one hand, I think Heidi's right. That that is, that is duty arriving on his doorstep and saying, now you have this, and this is going to come in conflict with your desires and with, with the way that you have chosen to live your life. On the other hand, that is a, an elemental pressure that, um, that is what it is, regardless of how you respond to it, right? It, it's ceaseless and it just is there. And so um, has the count changed by considering these questions and, and adapting and all of that? Maybe, but really what I think has changed is his circumstances. And so I, he, he, to me, he looks more self-aware than he was. But again, that's because of this amazing distance um, between the self and the other. And the, the fabric of that distance um, is, is what carries those questions to him and brings them home to him. He loves Sophia, and now that is. And so it's going to have its impact on his character and on his personality. I think the same thing is true of Anna. Um, not to single anyone out because I haven't read these emails, but the idea that his relationship with Anna is a lack in him or a, a, is a detriment, a signifier of his bad character or something like that. I just don't think that's true. I think we have to, we have to allow the novel to speak to us a little bit. He's been put in circumstances where this is the only variety of intimate relationship that is possible, right? Um, unless he's going to ask a woman to submit to house arrest in this hotel with him. I think especially well, he has a daughter. The, he, okay, but devil's advocate, he has a daughter who doesn't who doesn't have to live under house arrest. Yeah, that's true. Although she didn't choose that either. By the end of the section, perhaps she does. But when she arrived, she was a little girl. Yeah, I think I I think this the novel doesn't. I think we 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 the audience, the reader, can certainly indict a character in our own minds for a character flaw or, or an immoral action. I just don't think the novel does. Well, right. and, I, and I will say there were two kinds of conversations I was having with people. One mm -hmm. was, okay, so if you're, and this is just kind of a meta conversation, like a, you know, conversation right. about how we about talk about literature. how to read, sure. Or, or even just how to talk about literature. Like there isn't, the, one of the questions was, okay, so the book seems not to indict mm -hmm. on a moral level their relationship. Right, but if we as readers do indict that, then at what point is it right to say, "Okay, we indict that"? One of the things I was thinking is that there is, a, to a certain extent, a common moral framework that we, the three of us at least, collectively sort of subscribe to, and so you sort of have to say, "Well, we agree with this," and that's like we we accept that we agree with this. So then let's talk about the book as the book is being presented to us. So then of course then the question becomes okay do I do I just set aside my own moral judgments when I'm reading or can I allow that or can I use my moral judgments to to say whether or not a book is worth reading. And then the question the follow up question then becomes well if a book can a book be both good and not worth reading, you know? <laughs> so there's a lot of these different questions yeah. that 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 you get a kind of a rabbit a, a rabbit trail or like a snowball effect of questions that that come up when you're talking about something like this. Um so I think maybe it's worth separating separating that. So so then are we saying I just want to put a bow on this I suppose. Are we saying and and their relationship does come up in this section so I think it's worth discussing. It does, yeah. Are we saying then that for certain 
the book is set is not indicting is is only presenting their relationship as a healthy pardon the the phrase outlet <laughs> for the count and for Anna like that it is nothing but an example of healthy companionship between them because I'm not even sure that I totally think that that's the case like I think the book is a little bit more subtle about how it views their relationship but I'd love to hear what you two think like Heidi do you think Tolls is just and the book is just presenting their relationship as like it's not asking quite moral questions but in terms of it being a healthy thing it's Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah no I understand your question I think that I I have not picked up on any kind of subtle uh, moral judgment on the fact that they're sleeping together periodically. I really haven't, but I could be convinced if you think it's there, like with from the text, right? Mm -hmm. I think that um, I think that the book definitely holds up all of the Count's relationships, I think all, although if that's too strong, then I'd say most, and maybe Sophia is an exception to this. For the most part, it views his relationships through the lens of understanding that he does not have what he would have if he was out. Like if he, so all of them are lesser things Right. But I don't know that I think it's because they're sleeping together and not married that that's true for Anna. Un, un, okay, from I the see book. what you're Yeah. Because it yeah. doesn't, the book just doesn't treat it like casual, like a casual encounter. That's what the Count expected. And then that's not how it ended up. And they've made each other better over the years. And now they're in what amounts to a committed relationship. Although, I mean, to be fair, she is using her beauty and her sexuality and outside relationships to get things that the Count wants. So there's, (laughs) there's multiple levels of complexity to their relationship. And I think the book frankly acknowledges that's not a marriage and it's not the best thing, but I don't think it does it because from any kind of Christian ethic, that's like sleeping together outside of marriage is wrong. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that for sure. I don't sense any judgment of the relationship from the, from the story. your other point about all of his relationships being lesser and, and excluding Sophia, which I think is probably wise. I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if I can go all the way there. Um, there's a line in here. I can't remember where it is, but there's a line in here where he, where he talks about being the luckiest man in, in yes, Russia. He repeats that a couple of times. That's true. Yeah. And I think um, to me, what it feels like is that this is an observation of the fact that life is not actually black and white, um, that that morality, while it is and while it it um, affects our lives, is not actually a complete way of viewing the world and of viewing human relationships because human beings are so nuanced and because they're mysteries under themselves, um, there is there is a lot more gray than we're comfortable with. And all of, I speak for myself. There's a lot more gray than I'm comfortable with, um, and I think that's part of what the what the whole conversation about the former and the latter is. You guys remember that section? Mm-hmm. 
Yes. The idea of whether Russia is going to throw its doors wide open or slam them shut to the rest of the world. And he's hung up on this idea. And there's a lot of things going on in that conversation. Um, maybe the first one that I noticed is that he is actually out of touch now with what's going on in his own country. And Anna has a better perspective because she's frankly living outside of the hotel. Right. Um, but the other thing going on in there, I think, is this it's it's a struggle for the count to acknowledge the gray area. Um and it's a struggle for him to, to resist separating the world into these very neat categories. And the longer he lives, the more um, jumbled everything becomes. And I, I guess one of the questions is, is he going to be able to embrace that and make peace with it? Um, with the fact that his life didn't go exactly the way that he thought it would or the way that he perhaps deserved with the fact that his country isn't getting what it thought it could or what it perhaps deserves and so on. David, you mentioned having a different perspective on this question with Anna too. What, what's yours? Well, I don't, I, I wasn't saying that I think the book is trying to like make the case for some Christian ethic of marriage. So, but I don't think that like the book necessarily thinks that the reasons why they're in a relationship or the circumstances of the relationship are 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 healthy like i th- i think it i think that one of the things that it's doing is it's showing sorry my dog is barking outside the window here um and i think she's barking at the wind which I have a conversation with that <laughs> a wise sometime. dog, uh, a wise but, dog. Oh, but um I think that there are like, I think one of the things that their relationship is showing is absences. Like it's, as you said, Heidi, it's showing what they lack and, and, you know, circumstantially, like the things that, that he is not able to participate in, but it's so secret and he is devious about it. And he is a little bit, um, he has to be clever to maintain it or he thinks he has to be clever to maintain it. Well, it doesn't work. Right. Like, right. But that's what I'm saying is like, all of he he like for years and years has this like shadow relationship that like he he has to like hide and he, it, he what when he when it's finally revealed that they know it's like there's a there's an actual sense of community there that he was he was burying himself from and i think that that is is like a, i think the book sees that as a flaw for him um, I was thinking of okay. I want to I want to kind of shift this a little bit. Like, we can have another discussion sometime about it, reading things that you don't believe in and how to assess that and like when you should add that to a discussion of a book. Like that's that is part. I think that is part of a discussion you can have about a book, but it's a different kind of discussion. I agree. Than close reading a text. Um. But I'm curious, what what do you all... Okay, this is like a very sort of pedantic, overly simplified way of putting it. What do you think the Count's fatal flaw is? Like most characters in literature have some sort of a fatal flaw that is um, part of... It's like going along with them on their journey and it's something they kind of always have to resist, if you will. So, and I know, again, it's a super oversimplification to call it that and to say that every book has that. But for the sake of this conversation, just just go with me. I feel like Ian's brain is churning and he's coming up with books that don't have that. But I could, you know, I, I think that in an oversimplified <laughs> way, 
every character has a fatal flaw. And that's kind of the point I don't of disagree with making a all. complex character complex. So I'm yeah. just, but, but this book, I think, doesn't always make clear what the journey is, what the flaws are, what is a flaw versus a, what is a vice versus a virtue. Like, I think there's a lot of gray area in how he presents those. And one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is, is that on purpose or is that a um, lack of virtue ethic in the story itself? Which, again, it goes back to the other conversation. But what, but what do you think about this? Fatal flaw. I was rambling there to give you a chance ahead, to think. Heidi. I think yes, it's, Heidi's trying to go first. Yeah, I think it's vanity. Mm. I I think he's vain. Ian about, just made a made a bit made a face. I wish I had a I screenshot. It was an exultant like face. That. I think I he like might it like a lot. Answer. Keep talking. Keep talking. Um, I think he's vain about the impression he makes on others. I think he's vain about his uh, social status and his family and birth and wealth and prestige and um and knowledge and his gen his identity as a gentleman and and that has that vanity has sustained him and also wounded him right it's both like it's like uh it's kept him from sinking into despair and kept him from becoming insufferable um but also, it has it it has also <clears throat> man. I'm just like having to clear my throat a couple times today. It's not I don't Phoenix know why. Air. It's I guess so. Um, and see, I I too am vain, and so that's why I recognize it. <laughs> now I'm like embarrassed. Um, so I think that that is. I think that's his fatal flaw. Um, I think it has kept him a gentleman but also kept him in many ways from entering into some changes and some like the deeper parts of himself that he probably should be addressing more and circumstances as, as Ian pointed out, I really like what you said. He's more acted upon than acting, which is part of the nature of his circumstances. Mm -hmm. But also I think there's some actions he could have taken along the way, even if they were just internal choices that he missed because he's vain and tends to kind of be on the surface of things. Yeah. I like that a lot. I like that a lot. I think that's definitely true. The other thing it makes me think about though, is that, um, oh, he's so human. Like he's just so human and so relatable. Um, one of the things that we see in literature and in life, I think is that, uh, I think it's I think it's it's John Calvin that talks about the human heart as as an idol factory, um, and we're more likely to make idols. Or I say we maybe that's too general, but we're more likely to make idols of good things than bad ones much of the time. His desire to be balanced and to be a gentleman and to be kind and to be resolute and just and all of these things are good things to want, but claimed as an identity. Um, they're not sufficient because the human heart is a mystery unto itself. And so I, I think it's really beautiful when Anna sees him and Sophia sees him and they basically reveal that they have seen him and he doesn't know what to do with it because he's concealed that part from himself. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's, that's the habit in a really good novel that imitates life and that does its best to give us the human experience. Um, you'll see that happen a lot. You'll see someone who has mistaken their 
good desires for their identity. And, and it's always, it's always the other, the, the wife or the child or the friend that looks, looks at them and shows them themselves um, and participates in tearing those idols down. You're making me think that perhaps this is a book about less, that's less about the way the character changes and more about the way the perspective of the reader on the character changes. Because I think that we're meant to think at the beginning hmm. he is deeper than he is. Hmm. And I think now as the book goes on, I think the book kind of reveals that he actually might be shallower than we think. And I don't just mean like he's into shallow things because I think that is... No, I don't know if that's true. But I mean shallow in terms of like his understanding of virtue, I think is shallower than his highfalutin language would imply. I think he speaks better than he knows sometimes but he mm. that's i don't mean that like in other words he doesn't realize how well he's speaking i think he speaks in a more eloquent fashion than he's actually capable of understanding if that makes sense i don't know exactly how to put it because i lack his eloquence um and what do you think of that um i i like it but i do think that he i do think he's growing i do think he's I do think that there's more of a wholeness to him, but I actually really like what you said about the perspective um, that he's not necessarily growing deeper. He's not presenting any hard fought like prudence and wisdom like Lee is in East of Eden. If you're following along with that listeners that, but he is getting better if not deeper. And I think that, is legitimate. You know how in the Lord of the Rings, by the end of it, Frodo has like scars, essentially. Mm-hmm. And the yes. scars are like he evidence of what he has endured. Mm-hmm. I, I can't. I, I don't know. Like, what are the scars that the Count has that, based on what he has endured? I think as much as anything, it's like he becomes more self-aware of the scars he doesn't have. Well, he's more like Merry or Pippin, right? Like he's not like the leading man, like Aragorn, who's he does, now he would crowned. love a like yes, and they don't necessarily get deeper. Mary probably does, but they do get better, I... right? And they have a heroism of their own that is different from Frodo's, but just as embattled, hard fought, and valuable. And I do, I think I do believe that's true of the Count as well. If there's a journey that takes place here, maybe maybe it's a journey from self-sufficiency into acknowledgement of need. Interdependence with the community. Right, yeah. right exactly. I mean, there yeah, is like, no transcendent, there's just, no talk of faith in the novel. No, As right. any kind of meaningful, me, like no, meaning-making. to it. The, right to the Russian faith as culture, right? Right. Not as this, as as some kind of um, either sure, moral sure, guide sure. or spiritual guide. Like he's not trying for the salvation of his soul, and that's mm-hmm. a missing piece. And I think that's probably what keeps the novel from being great. Because I think in well, there's a couple of things that keep it from being great, but it is really good. And that does matter a lot because a man on a journey like this internally surely would have a spiritual aspect to it. So it just seems intentionally absent. 
Yeah, um, and yeah. and you can't have a depth of greatness of soul without some kind of spiritual journey. Um, and so I think that that's missing and keeps him kind of superficial. But I do I do think he's getting better on the terms of the novel. <laughs> I disagrees. I don't know that I disagree. I'm just okay. Wait, I'll do it as a question instead. Page three thirty seven, at least in my edition, um, the count looks across the bar and sees the young architect sketching away in his notebook, mm-hmm. and he almost goes over to him, but decides not to interrupt, and you know goes you know goes on to his next appointment or whatever. But get a load of this paragraph. At this particular moment, what the architect was working on was a detailed drawing of a crowded restaurant that looked very much like the piazza. Only under the floor of this restaurant was an elaborate mechanics of axles, cogs, and gears. And jutting from an outside wall was a giant crank, at the turn of which each of the restaurant's chairs would pirouette like a ballerina on a music box, then spin around the space until they came to stop at an entirely different table. And towering over this tableau, peering down through the glass ceiling, was a gentleman of 60 with his hand on the crank, preparing to set the diners in motion. So we're outside of the Count's head here. We're, we are omniscient narrator. Right. Omniscient is looking narrator. at what this character, this guy is drawing. Yep. So what do you make of that? Like, to me, this read as that peculiar ability of an artist to see a person and see into a person and write the truth about them. And I think perhaps Tolls fancies himself as possessing that ability, which is a whole nother conversation. But (laughs) in this particular moment, this reads as an indictment to me of the Count's misplaced faith in him, in himself. So is it the vanity that Heidi was talking about? I think so. Yeah, I think so. I think he has turned into his own reservoir of talent and he has created for himself a new kingdom over which to rule. And this young architect can see that. And so he paints him as this, this God figure in his own eyes, looking down through the glass ceiling and, and arranging the details of everyone's lives. This, one of the things that I have trouble with with him, understanding what the book is going for exactly, is like the way the book brings in those things we talked that like the philosophy we talked about last week, you know, whether the book is up to the the ideas that it's presenting and like you get the stuff with Mishka. And I think that he thinks he understands what people like Mishka care about. Um, he thinks he understands the impact of what's happening. He thinks he understands what really matters. Mm-hmm. And he is he is like he also thinks he's fighting to preserve something um and then he keeps getting revealed to him how little he actually understands and and so like he thinks he's kind of been locked away and he's suffering something but we we know he's like he kind of has been saved from a lot of things in a way yes and yet he also has been like what he has been sort of shut away from is like progress right like Anna shows him Life magazine with all the modern technology, and he's just sort of like, that looks dumb. <laughs> right. Um, but he he doesn't really have the wisdom that he thinks, or that the book even seems to present him as having at the beginning of the book about these great ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and we find out in this section that he didn't even write the poem that 
that saved that his has life. made yeah. his reputation that saved his life but yeah. wow you guys are harsh on him today because <laughs> he's but but he he took the punishment of his friend thinking not to save himself but to save mishka and then well, he's, he's gonna get he said he's gonna get shot if he his his disconnection from the ideas of the time are evidence of his lockdown not of his shallowness of soul he doesn't know the ideas anymore he's right he's more and more disconnected. Yeah. he's more and more disconnected from the ideas because as you said ian he's more and more connected with people yep he's he's a better father he's he's a good he's a good friend right like he's he's serving people by with in the restaurant like it's his his disconnection from the ideas of the time seemed to me a natural result of the fact and sad result of the fact that he's not out there encountering the ideas anymore he's no longer connected he's obsolete also they to me show evidence that he's put down roots so deeply in this community and relationship that those ideas no longer form the trajectory of his life as much as the relationships that have brought him healing and connection do. Well said. And well that's said. where he's great. And that's mm -hmm. where he's risen to the occasion. And he's less of an abstract gentleman and more of a human person. Right. Well, and this is, this is, um, we've talked about this a million times, but the struggle of the culture has been boiled down and put into this man's life, right? That's one of the things the novel is about. Right. And true. And the the Bolshevik revolution and then the Soviets, I mean, all of that is an example of abstract idealism that refuses to take into account literal consequence, right? Like it's, it's the pursuit right. of these high-minded ideas that gets millions slaughtered. Um, and so I think, I think you're right. I like the way you said that it, it's a progress from him away from idealism into the real and, and he's waking up to what makes the real worth it. <laughs> and what makes the real worth it is having the two women in your life conspire behind your back and talk about your, your weaknesses. I think it's great. <laughs> I love it. Heidi, what are, uh, what is Ian's fatal flaw? <laughs> <laughs> Ian Brutal. doesn't have a fatal flaw and neither do you, David. <laughs> If someone was oh. to write a story of your life, it would be ignorance to knowledge. <laughs> it would just be an upward trajectory <clears throat> to the kingdom. Okay, oh, now let's man. get uh, let's get. Your I just need here. you on speed dial to say that to me once a day. That's you awesome. Got it. Just you got where, it. can you just bring Emily in here so I can ask her that question, Ian? <laughs> <laughs> right. No, no, no we cannot do that. She'll say the thing. <laughs> <laughs> now Emily would be nice. She'd mm -hmm. be nice about it. And then we'd have to text her later and get her done. No, that's why His I'm not asking he cares David too much. about my fatal flaw because I'm sure he knows it. So. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would just say, it. well, no, you already said what yours was, right? Yeah. So do we agree? We have to, I probably, I probably would just do the smart thing and just be like, well, you said it was vanity. So we're just going to yeah. go with that. Right. Which is uh, also true. You'd be right. <laughs> excuse me. Um. Okay. So we're getting towards, well, we're getting towards the end of our time here, but um. We've got one section left. It's longish, longish section. It's like it's probably the longest amount of reading, long, the most number of pages that we will read. I don't have to have to get to read. I don't know. Be reading. What do you want to talk about before we before we get into that? We should we talk about Sophia's prowess, musical prowess, or is that 
sort of just is what it is and we don't need to like dig into that too much. Um, this is a book that kind of asks you to uh, rejoice at a lot of things. And sometimes mm-hmm. like, is the rejoicing really like, do we want to dig too deep into the rejoicing or do we want to just say that was wonderful? <laughs> I well, think it's... Oh, go, ahead. go ahead, Heidi. I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say that to me is, you know how both of you have had one of those moments that you're like, this this novel just kind of like pushed me too far past the realm of of acceptance of the tropes. That's the one for me. Mm. Like not only is she beautiful, but she and demure and perfect in every way, but she's also this like a musical genius. And I, there've been so many of those that I've defended along the way. So I feel like I have to come with my confessional, (laughs) like, this is the one that I'm like, really? Okay. (laughs) This book is a fantasy. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And I have consistently been the one that's like, accept it. Just like, just let it, let it be too big. But this is the one for me that I'm like, okay, that's enough. So Ian, go ahead. You respond what you were going to say. And then I've got something, something to say. Yeah. So I think this is actually a little bit ominous to me um, because he knows, although I would hazard a guess to say if he's anything like a realistic character, he's been hiding from the eventuality of her leaving and going off and having a life that includes him as often as she can visit. This is what all parents have to have to face. Right. Um, And so for me, it's a plot device. It is. It's a plot device. But I think, I think for me, her musical gift and the fact that she's going to be in high demand, um, paired with the line where she says, "You needn't worry, Papa. I never intend to leave the Metropole." That was pretty bittersweet um, because she's twenty. I did the math. She's twenty years old at that point, um, and is in all likelihood about to do that very thing. I don't know. I haven't read the novel, but, but um, my anticipation is that she will not in fact stay in the Metropole forever. So that was a little ominous from my perspective. So in some ways that kind of thing with her makes it, I mean, I think you're right about that from a, I think you're right about what you're saying about in terms of the structure of the book. It makes her feel like a little bit of a, um, I wonder how much of it is meant to be like her, his perspective about his daughter. Like it's not, it's, he's like a, a parent who's not realistic completely about, about the child that they're raising. Cause it makes her feel like it makes her a little bit um, unrealistic as a character, as Heidi put it. She's just like too perfect. And it makes her like a little bit um, like, I'm not sure that I will really care if she leaves, I guess. Like I'd, <laughs> I'd be sad for him, wow. <laughs> but like if she steps off the stage, like she's not a character. Hmm. She's a fevered dream. Like, you know, like of a daughter, you know, that she didn't, even have to, you know, it, like there's not even like a lot, like the fact that there's no conflict between them and all that, like that's hilarious. Um, uh, so I don't, I, I, okay, so I have a theory. I have a theory that it's not true, Go but on. I want it to be true. Okay. So you guys know the theory about, okay, have you either, have you seen the new Top Gun movie, Top Gun Maverick? Have I seen it? You, okay. Yeah. How many times did you see it in the theater? Uh, actually, only once. Well, that was a waste. Um, it was a huge waste. No, that's not true. I saw it yeah. twice. Two times. Okay. Heidi, you've seen it? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. So have you heard the theory about this movie? No. Okay. So there is a theory that it, that, you know, okay. So at the beginning of the movie, he goes up in like that super sweet plane. Trying and like to break an airspeed breaks record. Breaks the record, right? Yeah. He breaks the airspeed record, airspeed record, right? 
And in real life, there's been a lot of people who are like, he probably could never like actually, like it'd be pretty tough to survive that. Like it'd be entering the atmosphere part. Like the plane wouldn't like disintegrate or whatever, like Neil deGrasse Tyson said. Uh, but that you, as you enter the atmosphere, you'd have some problems, right? Um, depending on what kind of clothes you're wearing. Okay, so anyway, that's not the point. But a lot of people believe or have this theory that the rest of the movie from that point on is he's dead. Yeah. And it's like a death dream. Love it. Freaking so awesome. That doesn't, that doesn't, like it actually kind of, like you could wa- okay, watch the movie with that in mind and it really kind of checks out. Like a lot of it kind of works, but I can't imagine that the, that the creators actually were doing that. But if they were, that's like one of the great it's an awesome inception moment. <laughs> exactly. So I want that to be true of this book. Mm. I want him to have actually gotten shot. And this is all his death dream. It's all like him. It's like this moment where he like all, all the things that he doesn't have are like laid out before him. And part of it is because I read it to all be so fantastical and such a fantasy. And it would actually be like more compelling to me. And I'm being like kind of harsh in the way that I phrase this to the book. But I think it would just be, it's like the kind of thing that people dream about and wish for and fantasize about in so many ways rather than a life organically lived. And I know that's kind of the point in some ways. Mm-hmm. Because he's cut off from the reality of life. Um, and because everybody that kind of comes in contact with him is sort of like an incomplete character because he never ultimately has the time to get to know too many of them, which I think is why I want the ones that we do get to know to be more real characters instead right. of sort of ciphers. Right. Um, but that that fantastical element to me is a bit of a distraction from the points that I think Tolls is trying to make in the moments that it's really, really good. So that's a harsh way of putting it, but I think it's it's not a death death a death dream, right? But the idea of it being a fantasy is interesting to me, and like I can't decide if I think he's how much he's doing that on purpose or how much it's tolls kind of just like unspooling his own sense of like I love this thing, I love this thing, I love that that particular wine i love that food i love the notion of that kind of preparation a great waiter is a true craftsman you know um (laughs) architecture russian history russian culture dostoevsky tolstoy it's like he rolodexed all the things he loved and then created this fantasy around those it's a really enjoyable fantasy but i think that's where to your point heidi maybe it, it keeps it from ultimately reaching the heights that the questions suggest that it's going after is that too harsh or can that be true and also the book be good and enjoyable and worth reading? I think both. I, I it's think both, both too harsh and enjoyable? Um, <laughs> I think, yeah, kind of. Because the book is, to me, it feels like intentionally on the surface. Like intentionally... Superficial. If you've read Rules of Civility, like Tolls has, is more than capable of creating pathos and depth in his mm-hmm. characters. And this book to me, I really like what you just said about how 
it's like this unspooling of his own vision of the good life for tolls. And I think that's probably true. And that's maybe my favorite thing about the book is I'm so tired of contemporary books that are trying to shame people for loving the good things about life. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just like really love that this book is just so delightfully playful yeah, and, in it. and yeah. And just like, lo- and, and it's like giving it to us with this lush and vivid and precision of descriptive power. And is like, look at this, mm-hmm. look at this, you guys, like, what would it be like to live your whole life in a luxury hotel? Everybody's thought of it. I'm here in Phoenix at a really nice resort. And I keep thinking like, could I live here forever? Cause I'm just reading gentlemen in Moscow. Um, and, and I think it's he does. Dry, a good, it's that dry heat. Yeah. I think he does a good job of giving us what it would be really like for an ordinary human. Who's not necessarily a great hero, but is on a journey of becoming just like everybody else. I do. I just like it. I think that's true. But I also think that you, so in that sense, I'd say that's probably a bit harsh, but on the other side, I think it's so, oh, I think it's overly cliched. Like it's, it's so laden with these kind of fantasy people, as you've said, that it succeeds for me on the descriptions of, of the good life and the food and the wine and all that, but it falls a little bit flat with me caring about anybody, but the count, they all feel like just another bottle of wine. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Ian, are we being too harsh? No, I I don't know. I don't know. I kind of agree with you. So I'm trying to provide some (laughs) counterpoint, but the only thing I think that could rescue it is if he is intentionally describing all of these things and adjusting the tone of the novel to match the level of perception of his protagonist. And there Mm -hmm. is, there is a, there's a Mm -hmm. little bit of that here in this section. Yeah. Right. The fact that Anna and Sophia have been having a a relationship behind his back and he was totally unaware, right. Considered that his deception was complete. Like, I think there's, he looks around at his world blind and, and he doesn't see very well. So maybe that's, maybe the book is matching that in tone. And it might also be that it's not possible to, to do what Heidi's saying that she enjoys about this book without it having this, of the feel of a fantasy. Right. That might not right. be really possible to to unspool his vision of the good life, as it were, without it seeming a bit unrealistic because, you know. And just kind of letting it be there. I yeah, just like, yeah. it, to me, it's like a drinking a glass of champagne. It doesn't have the depth or like the body of like, a, yeah. I'm using I mean, a wine analogy. Yeah. It doesn't have like, a, <laughs> it's not like a, a Romane Conti. It doesn't have like this deep like Burgundian depth to it, but it has these like really fun bubbles that are perfect for it's any really day. Fun bubbles. Yeah, I mean, and I'm just I'm, like, I just want to drink the champagne. I'm like, being <laughs> a bit, I'm being a bit harsh in the sense that I'm like trying to probe at what makes the book right. work and what doesn't. Totally. That's kind of what we're doing, but that doesn't mean that I don't enjoy reading it, you know? Right. Yeah. And, okay. You know, I have one more thing though. Okay. That let's do that. Really, let's go. Okay. So, um, Debbie Holly Wallace on the Facebook page, put a really good comment that I wanted to throw out for you guys. She said she felt like we missed the mark um, on our last episode because she says, 
and I'm just going to read her comment, a portion of it. She says, the way the narrator breaks the fourth wall, so to speak, the asides and footnotes, the fact that, yes, the tone does not ever change from one speaker to the next, no matter who it is, the fact that the Count is a storyteller at heart, all these things make me wonder if he is actually the narrator. And if you read it that way, I think a lot of objections brought up on the episode come into focus and can be cleared away. Is it possible that we are hearing one voice because it's intentionally one voice and it's, it's the count, even though it's not in first person is we're getting one voice on purpose from tolls through the counts kind of memory. Maybe it's more of a memory novel. I don't know that I liked that comment a lot. And it, I've read this section kind of through that lens. I don't know if it's, I don't, I don't know, but I liked it and I wanted to throw it out. My dog is, I don't know if she's barking at me. Hey, Harper. She doesn't agree. Mm, Apparently (laughs) not. If only the count was there to do his special dog taming note. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's true. Yeah, yeah. Ian, what do you think about this? I that's I sort of think that's similar to what I was saying a second ago. Yeah, Um, I agree. I don't know that. I don't know that we have enough proof of that. But it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. The way he sees Sophia, for example. It helps me clear. It helps me with that relentlessly charming thing. Um, And the way all the characters kind of talk the same, Uh which is forgivable to me anyway, because I just think Tolls is such a so great at crafting sentences that I and it's not this is not a novel aspiring to become you know, a, a, a great, you know, a great book. And so to me, all that's forgivable anyway, but I just thought it was an interesting perspective. Mm-hmm. David, what do you think? I think that very few people in the history of the world should aspire to write a great book and only a few do. Mm-hmm. And, um, so yeah, I agree with that. Um, I, <clears throat> we'd have to get pretty deep into, um, definitions of narrative voice mm-hmm. to really explore this. Right. Um, I don't believe that there is such a thing as fourth wall in, in, in uh, narrative fiction. Um, so I, I think that that's a term that is most often used in stage and movies and stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> so I, I don't, I don't think that I don't think it's that. Um, Trying to think. I mean, like, I think the co- I think her comment is. Well, who said? Who did you say it was? Debbie. Debbie Holly Wallace. I think it's a yeah. great question, and I yeah, so and do I think I. it's a really mm-hmm. interesting thing to consider. I personally don't agree, and so I'm trying. Mm-hmm. To, I, but I want to be nice about disagreeing with her. <laughs> I don't want to disagree with an audience member, like meanly. <laughs> right. Uh, so Debbie, I think it's a great question. I think it's a great no, comment. Well, just like everybody, if you put something out there in the world, it no longer belongs just to uh, you. Yeah, it belongs yeah. to the people you gave it to. That's <laughs> yeah. It. So. so as you asked, so I'm going to just say that <laughs> I respectfully, personally disagree, but we'll be thinking about it as I read the rest of the novel. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll try to summarize this as quickly as possible without having to get into like a whole diatribe on the notion of narrative voice and how it's evolved over the course of 6,000 years of, you know, shared storytelling. Um, 
I want to hear the diatribe, but I get your point. We don't have time for that today. Yep. Um, okay, so I first of all, I don't think he does that because all of his books have this. <laughs> so I think if you're just looking at like if you're just considering the tolls, like if you're just considering tolls as an author, he'd have to be doing that in every book, and it wouldn't work in others of his books. So I don't. I think I agree with that. Actually, think that he's doing that here because of that. Like if I'm if I'm just assessing tolls as a as a as a novelist. It's not that he's not capable of that. I just think he chooses not to do that. I think he's making a con. He may, I think he's making a choice, and it's probably to some degree conscious, to just sort of write the way he writes, and it kind of sort of flows. So, like if you've read, I think you, should, if you've read um, Lincoln Highway, it's the exact same thing, and that book is definitely not possible. Like it, logically, it could not be possible. For it to be one narrator, because the characters are not in the same place. East of Eden does this to a certain extent. We mm-hmm. had a discussion about this in the first episode, where the narrator knows things he could not possibly know, but it claims to be mythology. It claims to be picking and choosing things that it, that the narrator has heard other places, and the narrator is another character. So if he is doing this. I would consider it to be a misunderstanding of narrative voice and deeply dishonest as a writer. So yeah. So I'm I'm like I have a, but but narrative voice is something that's like when an author understanding his own narrative voice is one of the most important things to me in all of any kind of art um but especially in in novel writing and so I'm I'm like very sensitive to it in a way that's not healthy <laughs> and in a way that that diminishes my own ability to write like uh, it makes it it's a very it's like i die over over this like not not like i would die over it like braveheart or joan of arc but like it it's a very it's a it's something that really is is a really intense thing for me and kind of um it, like the question, I'm like I'm kind of struggling because the question just like raises deep-seated psychological uh, <laughs> tensions for me. <laughs> Actually, that's, I'm, I'm overstating that a little bit, but it's just something that really matters to me a lot when it comes to all art, but especially, um, especially literature. And I, so I think, so I'm just going to summarize what I said again. I think if he's doing it, he's being dishonest mm-hmm. because at I, least in the East yeah. of Eden, he is saying, "I know things I shouldn't know." And this is why it works. Like he's right. conscious of what he's doing and he's preparing a way for the reader to experience that. And so I can accept it. But if you're doing that and you're not preparing a, a, a way for the reader to enter into that and you're not creating a conversation with the reader, then I think you're being dishonest. I th- it could still work, but I, I just don't know that he, he... If you combine that with the way that he tends to write in his other books, I don't know that he is, he is after that. So while I think it's an amazing question... I also kind of resent that I now have to think through this again, Debbie. Thanks a lot. <laughs> I think you're right. And I, again, I think that um, Rules of Civility, I think is his best book. And in that we have a first person narrator mm-hmm. and yep. it totally works. Like hair and the yep. voice is so good. Like I, I can't even get through the first page without just wanting to like write down 
Like just, just like the pleasure of reading the sentences and rules of civility, like the way he calls, oh, they're at the cocktail party. And he says that all the unemployed actors are serving them hors d'oeuvres. It's like so great. Like it's just this amazing description of life in New York through a first person narrator. And all of the memories are consistent in voice because they reflect her. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I, I agree because he doesn't choose a first person voice. It would be disingenuous to then later say it's all coming through the count. Yeah. I guess my sort of parting shot, this is going to sound way harsher than I mean it. So I'm going to preface this comment by saying I am enjoying this book thoroughly. I really like it. Yeah, 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 I like the way he writes. I like the story. I think it's, Raising some interesting questions, whether it's intentionally mm-hmm. doing so or about mm-hmm. doing it by accident. Who knows? It's just, it's a delight. Most authors are doing things by accident. Yeah, a lot of them are anyway. But, but it reminds me of a way better, way more effective version of a book that is really bad <laughs> called The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. Mm. Um, I've very, never heard of that book. It's a very popular kind of like contemporary YA, older YA. Yeah. Novel. Yeah. And it's um, maybe this will be sufficient to make the point. In that book, the author uses the word palimpsest um, probably 40 times in the space of like 300 pages. Um, and I, I, so I guess what I'm getting at is. This man writes, at least in this novel, he writes like someone who is head over heels in love with his own turn of phrase. And um, I haven't read the rest of his work. Maybe that continues, maybe it doesn't. But at least here, I think one of the criticisms that I would offer is um, you can tell. You can tell how much he loves the way he can say stuff. And again, I'm enjoying it. Because he can say stuff good. <laughs> yeah, he, <laughs> but, he's not wrong. He's right, not he's wrong, not wrong at all. But it, you can tell when an author's doing that. And to David's point, it feels a little bit less than than raw, a little bit less than real because of that. Yeah, so that's why I think. Well, anyway, yeah. All right, I said what I was going to say. All right, do we need? Do you think we answered her question, or is she just going to be upset with us now? No, I. I no, I, she's not going to be. I don't know. I don't know if she's going to be upset. Debbie, don't be I think upset. not. She's an intellectually honest person posing. It was a great a comment, question. Debbie. It was a great comment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah it was. Okay. So I also would like to point out, throw out there how often we are not accused, but pointed out how we, how generous we are <laughs> with literature, right? <laughs> and so everybody be aware how high a caliber we actually, how high standards we actually have. And this speaks, I think, to the quality of the books. This, this is a really, really good contemporary novel, better than most contemporary novels, but it is not on the canon of great literature. It's not even attempting to be on the canon of great literature. And we're pointing that out. Yep. We're allowed to do that. You know, it's funny because we do a contemporary novel that's newer and hasn't earned the test of time yet. And people are like, come on, some people are. A couple people are like, "Come on," and then, then we're too nice to books that we like. Don't feel like we have the the status to 
to, to judge that have, that have endured 500 years of reputation. And I'm then like, I are don't like, get Walker Percy, but I know he's so you're great. You're too nice. You're, you're too, too nice, nice you know? to Walker Percy. The moviegoer isn't <laughs> yeah. all that good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, just going to say, we did, uh, we put ourselves in this position and we ask, we ask for the, the criticism. So, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but thanks for listening. <laughs> No, actually, truly, thanks and happy for reading. No, yeah, we we love uh, these conversations with with you all, and we love hearing the feedback and the great questions and the emails and all that. So keep them coming, keep them coming. Um, don't forget that you can uh, catch up on the conversations that uh, Sean and Heidi and I have been having on East of Eden. It's one of it's just been so much fun. It's been a great series. I think it's one of the one the, the best we've done. Um, we've got a couple episodes here on this book, and then we're going to be moving on to My Name Is Asher Lev as our last book of the year. Um, and then, of course, at the end of the year, we are going to do our, our best of 2022 books. And then we'll move on to our 2023 schedule, which don't forget, you can find over at closereads.substack.com or also on the Facebook group. Um, don't forget to head over to centerforlit.com. Is that right? That's correct. Did I get that right? To, to see all the stuff that Ian is involved in, including all of the podcasts, the classes that they teach. Um, Heidi, what do you what do you need to plug right now? I don't, I don't know which URL to send people to at the moment. <laughs> no, just go read my column. Go to closereads.substack.com to read Heidi's new column this month, which gets into East of Eden. And if if you like it, if you liked what we're talking about there, you're going to like her column. And if you like that column, then you're going to like about what we're talking about on the show and you should subscribe. So, um, you know, it works out that way. Uh, We will have the announcement for our next long book coming up soon because we only have two episodes left on that, including the Q&A. So lots going on. Thanks to everyone who's been supporting the show. And of course, Ian, thanks... As I said at the top of the show, thanks so much for uh, for being a part of this series and the extended uh, Close Reads universe. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm enjoying it. Heidi, thanks to you as well. You're welcome. Enjoy Phoenix. <laughs> enjoy Mexico. And uh, I hope everyone enjoyed this episode. For Heidi White, for Ian Andrews, I'm David Kern. Till next time, happy reading. Happy reading.